You are listening to the audio edition of Unstoppable Farce, The Mitch Maloney Story, by Mitch Maloney, read by the author. Chapter 13, After Party on the SS Mayhem The good thing about my costume is that it completely conceals my identity. The bad thing is the limited visibility isn't making it easy to navigate my way through the brouhaha, which is chaotic and confusing enough to begin with, and what I can see past the foam rubber fangs is like some smashed-up kaleidoscope version of the Studio 8H expanded universe. Fortunately, I've got my faithful companion for half a chapter, Sherry O'Terry, to help guide me around. Unfortunately, she gets whipped in the face by a Garth Alger wig worn by Jason Sudeikis, causing her to trip over her ill-fitting Lothar of the Hill People mucklucks and smash into the conga line right between Chris Parnell in Drunk Uncle Dress and Maya Rudolph in Theodoric of York Threads. Trying not to get pulled in, I jerk backward and end up on top of Rachel Dratch, who happens to have on a Baby Yoda costume that's almost as padded as what I'm wearing, so neither of us needs an ambulance. But I'm not so sure about O'Terry, who, from what I can tell, hasn't broken any bones, but seems to be having a full-throttle panic attack, judging by how she's currently on the ground in the fecal position, which probably has as much to do with the medical experiment. Hi! Hi, hi, hi! Uh... <laughs> I could just cut in for one second, Mitch. Oh, come on. Well, I have to check because it kind of sounded like instead of fetal position... Fetal position? You mean curled up like a baby? Well, see, that's usually... Sounds like you've never been in a high-pressure scenario with Sherry O'Terry. I can't say that I have, no. Well, take it from me. What I said was accurate. Because she was... I think I... Take your point, Mitch. That's what I thought. So anyway, I help her up, and I figure she probably has low blood sugar. So I scan the cabin for canapes. Fortunately, Paul Lapel passes by with a tray of puff pastries. So I grab one and shove it into O'Terry's yapper. Pell's wearing just leather pants and one of those bow ties with a built-in collar. And as I scan the cabin... I see several service staff suited up similarly, such as Streeter Seidel, who's slinging sliders, and Emily Spivey is spreading around some Spanakopita. I think I'm starting to notice a trend here. Let's see. Rosebud Baker's got the cocktail shaker, and Kent Sublette has got bruschettas. Heck, even Jack Handy's got a big sack of candy, and all of them are wearing that same ensemble that only a Swayze in his prime level beefcake could really pull off. I'd always figured the writing staff were underappreciated, but the fact that they've got to cater the biggest and likely last bash ever says it all.
Besides the quill pushers, I notice a couple of cases where there's some doubling up in the wardrobe department, which I guess is bound to happen at a masquerade ball this massive. Why, there's Al Franken and Tim Meadows over by the latrines, having a sweaty ball taste test while wearing matching NPR sweater vests. And there's Kristen Wiig and Victoria Jackson on top of the life jacket cabinet, trying to sort out who does the best Colonel Angus. And there's plenty of alumnuses wearing matching outfits, not by accident, but like some kind of gang uniform. The biggest bunch is the Blues Brothers, which seems to be the go-to get-up for the brick wall boys and girls. After that, the old improvers and sketchheads have divvied themselves up into a contingent of coneheads, a gaggle of gap girls, a cluster of Californians, and so on. I'd expected the drugs and the depravity, but the tribalism not so much. And to be honest, I don't care for it. I think of something Molly Shannon once said, maybe because I see her over in a booth, garbed up like Ed Grimley, and snorting lines of blue off Bobby Moynihan's gold-sequined mango shorts-bedecked haunches. Shannon wrote in her highly recommended autobiography that comedy groups that are too clicky or culty aren't her thing, because real comedy comes from the perspective of the outsider. And note one. I couldn't agree more with that sentiment, and rarely have I felt like more of a fish out of water than this party. In fact, my costume could hardly be a more literal translation of that idea. So, by that logic, I should be full of grade-A gags and bits right now. But I'm not at this party to crack wise. I'm here to get back the hairpiece I love. So, I get O'Terry up and running, and we make our way to the Lido deck, where a dozen or so dirtlings, dressed in killer bee clothes, are up to some kind of creepy, weird ritual that definitely isn't fit for the tourists at the EIO Olympics or whatever. They're moving around real herky-jerky and speaking in some creepy-sounding chant language. It's the Dolora, says O'Terry, softly but real excited. And I guess she can tell even from underneath all of this foam rubber that I'm confused. Because she says, you know what a herald is, right, Mink? I assume she's talking about the long-form improv structure, wherein characters and themes are introduced and then recur in a series of connected scenes, games, and monologues, first performed in 1967 in San Francisco by the radical improv activist outfit known as The Committee. And note two. But I'm trying to keep a low profile, so I just nod. Sure, sure. And O'Terry, who's really getting into it now, spittle collecting at the corner of her mouth, says, Then you know that when performed properly, the Herald can wire together multiple brains to unleash near-limitless metaphysical potential. Now imagine taking all that psychic energy and running it backward. Now, for most of us, what she's saying sounds nuts, obviously, but she's got that deluded wide-eyed faith that you just don't see that often, unless you're talking to someone who's really into improv. This is the dark rite known as the Dolora, she continues. Time can be reversed, and potentially death itself may be undone. So saith the forbidden scrolls of the elders of the compass. Listen, Mink, listen to the invocation. 
I decide right then and there I'm going to cut O'Terry loose. I've dealt with all sorts of maniacs in this business. Drug addicts, sexual predators, Jehovah's Witnesses. But listening to someone talking about improv exercises is more than I can bear. And on top of that, I'm a little annoyed that she still can't get my name straight. You really believe all that crap, don't you, O'Terry? She nods. These are your people, aren't they? That's right, Milge, she responds. Then go out there and be what you were meant to be, the center of attention. Are you sure, Milf? She asks, and I give her the old go and get. Chris Catan takes her leather hood and hands her an antenna headband in exchange as she instinctively joins in the sketchy mind meld. So I leave her behind and go upwards and onwards and into a gussied-up, neon-covered video arcade on the mezzanine level that, according to the strobing neon sign, is called the Neptune Lounge. I almost trip over Roseanne Rosanna Dana replica Chloe Feynman, who happens to have her arm stuck halfway up inside the claw machine. I squeeze past black-faced Beck Bennett, blasting bucks as buckwheat. I hear the clanking of air hockey paddles, and turn to see the lonely island lads dressed in delicious dish duds. So what do all of these propeller heads have in common, I wonder, as a sharp pain shoots into my shoulder? I've been hit by a dart. And judging by the way the please-don't-destroy dudes, all dressed like Dieter, are shrugging their shoulders in dramatic displays of dumb denials, I'm guessing it was one of them that tossed it. Those disrespectful dweebs never paid any dues to the Brotherhood of the Brick Wall or signed up with a squad of sketchies. And I realize, that's it. That's what all these square pegs playing with themselves in the dark have in common. They're the players that got hired off of social media, like Dunstube and Clipclop. This is the video arcade of the misfit cast members. I'm smarting from the darting, but I don't have time to settle the score for a minor infraction. Unlike Cecily Strong, I know when it's time to move on. So I do. On up to the Fiesta Ballroom, where I see Keitlinger, Pharaoh, and a few other Jake and Elwoods gathered around a raised platform, where two of the most infamously underused cast members of all time pace, pose, and strut. Their attire, the drab gray sweats and leather workout belts of Hans and Franz, is both event-appropriate and practical for the demonstration. Grandmaster Rock says they're about to share some taboo techniques that would definitely be off-limits on the mainland. A furtive murmur goes through the crowd. I've heard of this dark defendu, albeit in the hushed tittle-tattle of the dojo locker room. But what could it consist of beyond the obvious genital gouging? The secret of the three-finger heckler homicider says Supreme Sensei Silverman, is to think the unthinkable. Does anybody know how you can think the unthinkable? Wait a minute. 
I know this one. How do you think the unthinkable? As I consider the Cohen, a grumpy cater waiter, Jim Downey if I'm not mistaken, approaches and offers me a tasty looking stuffed mushroom. Everybody seems pretty distracted, so I stick my face out just far enough to pop the canapé, and apparently just long enough to be spotted by a looking Nora Dunn, who suddenly on top of me, poking my foam rubber finery with an outstretched finger and ranting about my right-wing alter ego, Wade Dinklington, the Lithuanian chupacabra. I have a feeling she's not going to buy the political satire argument any more than the HBO board of directors, so I try flattery instead, telling her that the Stefan hairdo and Ed Hardy top really suits her, which is true, by the way. But that doesn't slow down Dunn, who's threatening to have me deplatformed right into the Hudson. So I start backing away, steadily, trying to lose myself in the crowd. And when I see an opening, I turn and make a break for it. And when I get up top on deck, it's obvious that this party is unmoored in more ways than one. As in, not only is it a chaotic, violent, free-for-all, drug-filled orgy rave, but the ferry itself is no longer anchored to the pier which I hadn't noticed until now. It's bobbing along down the harbor, Lady Liberty shrinking in the distance, and if I'm not mistaken, we're about to go underneath the Verrazano Bridge. A blast of feedback from an amplifier cuts through the chaotic din, followed by the cheerily authoritative disembodied voice of Daryl Hammond channeling Don Pardo. And now, your musical guest... Fear. A pair of cleegs lights up the crow's nest as drummer Spit Sticks launches into a brutal blast beat, and singer Lee Ving growls out, There's so many of us, there's so many of us, there's so many, there's so many of us, there's so many of us, there's so many. As the band erupts into the chorus of Let's Start a War, picking up their infamous riot-inciting set from the very note it was cut off by Tartikoff 45 Halloween shows earlier, any last remnants of order come completely unraveled. Chains, whips, switchblades, bags o' glass, boxes, bassomatics, happy fun balls, laser cats, you name it. Nothing's off limits. It feels like a prophecy being fulfilled. And maybe it is. Now that the central unifying lodestone of the show has been removed, the children of Saturday night have embraced the spirit of chaos as their new executive producer. Over on the port side, a pack of pyromaniacal punsters with acetylene flamethrowers burn the flesh of their brethren in a roast battle that has really gone off the rails. While on the starboard side, a thermally antithetical calamity is unfolding. A mixed mob of sketchheads have gone from supportive yes-anding to aggressive no-butting as they bombard one another with liquid nitrogen pellets in a savage session of freeze tag. Is everybody at this after-party about to die? And if so... Will it be because of the fire or because of the ice? I'd say from what I've tasted of satire, I'm sticking with those that handle fire.
Although I guess if this boat had to go down twice, the ice thing might also be a pretty good way to end this chapter. But I've got more immediate concerns, because here comes Nora Dunn, angrily shoving her way through the pit of bloodthirsty pogo dancers right towards me. So I scramble around a corner and slip behind Robert Smigel, en route to reload his empty tray with finger food and follow him through some swinging doors into a service hallway. But instead of going into the prep kitchen, I shove my way into a ventilation shaft and slide straight down a steep steel tube. Thanks to my costume being basically one big cushion, I avoid injury when I land in a heap. So I scan the new scene, which I figure is the engine room, based on all the turbines and gearboxes, and the two rows of giant spinning translucent gerbil-style wheels on either side of the chamber. Carefully, I inch along squeezing between the spinning discs. In the one to my right, I see a sweaty and exhausted A. Whitney Brown with monitors attached to his chest and a feeding tube down his throat. On my left is Lauren Holt, sweating and running like her life depends on it, which seems entirely possible. If the rest of this party is a real who's who, then the engine room is more of a who's that situation. There's Watkins, Wells, and Whelan, Rutnitsky and Brooks, and Little Duke Null. It's all the poor schmucks who never made it past the probationary phase of the show. The ones that Unky Lorne held up to the spotlight for a moment before casting them aside onto the dustbin of televisual history. And now, what's left of them? Whatever life force still lingers in the limbs of these decimated dreamers is being used to keep this barnacle-covered monument to hubris and narcissism afloat. I thought the cater-waiting writers got a raw deal, but I guess compared to these folks, the human battery forever featureds, they got off easy. I lock eyes with Aristotle Atari in anguish as he forces his legs to keep up with the spinning cylinder. I don't care how lousy he was on the show, or that his only decent character was a Mr. Zed ripoff. Nobody deserves this kind of torture. I hear a thud behind me and turn to see Nora Dunn, who's just shot out of the shaft and nailed a flawless three-point landing. She's got tenacity, that's for sure but I guess I should have expected nothing less from the woman who kept trying to push Pat Stevens onto the world. She's blazing a trail toward me, her eyes black with anger, so I grab a rung of a rope ladder that I just happened to notice dangling right next to me and start climbing, and a couple dozen rungs later I'm shimmying through a hatch and into some dark, quiet area. But Dunn is climbing quickly and is nearly at the top, screeching, You haven't seen the last of Nora Dunn, you racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, transphobic, unfunny dirtbag. So I slam the hatch down in her face. Nobody calls Mitch Maloney unfunny. I figure I must be in a storage closet or something, on account of all the drop-cloth-draped lounge chairs around me. But then, as the dust cloud settles and my eyes adjust to the darkness, I manage to trace the outlines of some ancient, emaciated bodies 
breathing raspily under the sheets and the brass plaque on the wall that reads, First Class Passengers Only. An old TV in a corner plays a badly degraded Betamax of the land of Gorch that nobody appears to be paying attention to, unless you count the ancient vacant eyeballs of Lorraine Newman, slack-jawed and gazing vaguely in that direction, while well-known groomer Horatio Sands gently combs her brittle silver hair. I creep slowly along the wall, hoping the bedpan-scrubbing attendant Jay Moore, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't notice me hiding in the shadows. But I needn't worry. He's more preoccupied with pilfering a pocket watch from the side table of a nearby patient, a liver-spotted drooler sipping Ovaltine from a skull-shaped sippy cup. I guess that's what's left of old man Aykroyd. Meanwhile, Jane Curtin is doing slow-motion donuts around the perimeter of the room with her two-wheeled walker. Compared to her old update partner, she's surprisingly spry, but I guess that's not much of a surprise, considering she's likely the least debauched resident of the first-class cabin. An expressionless man-sized meerkat with alopecia sits under a crocheted quilt in a lazy boy-style wheelchair, weakly flinging spoonfuls of fruit cocktail at the tarp-covered pile of garbage to my left. Upon closer observation, the fruit flinger turns out to be none other than William James Murray, and the trash heap is actually the bloated, malodorous flesh vessel of maybe the most detestable alumnus in the history of the show. It seems impossible that there was a time he was considered some kind of sex symbol, let alone a gifted comedic performer or emergent movie star. Meerkat Murray was generous when he called him a medium talent, and I'm just glad to say that he's Cornelius Crane Chase, and I'm not. I slip past the in-memoriam alcove containing a bust of Belushi as well as a gilded Radnor and see sitting in a sunbeam on the other side of the cabin the crumpled mahogany face of Garrett Morris smiling benignly while nurse Jenny Slate rolls him a marijuana cigarette. He asks her to tell him again about where they're going but she says she's f***ing sick of talking about f***ing St. Bart's. So that's where the mayhem is headed. St. Bart's, the bastion of the comedic elite, described by Kevin Nealon in his lavishly illustrated collection of anecdotes as the preferred getaway for Unky Lorne and his inner circle during the winter hiatus, where they would live it up in the luxurious lap of hilltop villas and white sand beaches. And note three. I guess now the plan is a full-on invasion of the Caribbean Isle, an opportunity to retire en masse. Or maybe a chance to start over again, to start a new breed of super FCs, unburdened by the concerns of the lesser people, the unchosen ones. I pass a placard on the wall that gives me just enough information to get to the next chapter, Captain's Quarters, that away. So I follow the arrows up a spiral staircase until I come to a reinforced steel vault door with a circular red handle that doesn't budge. So I try knocking instead, 
and a little speakeasy-style window slides open as a familiar voice from the other side, Leslie Jones, if I'm not mistaken, asks for the password, and without really thinking about it, I say the first thing that springs to mind, Candy Graham. This audio edition of Unstoppable Farce, the Mitch Maloney story, was made possible by the Seventh Reformed Church of Latter-day Witnesses, the Bleepers.